Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. Well, to start off with, why don't we let our listeners know a little bit about your uh, background, just as far as your full name, your title, and uh, where are you from? Yeah, so uh, my name is Francisco Sigueroa, and I was born and raised in Laredo, Texas. And I am the director of University Transplant Center at the University of Texas Health Science Center and at University Hospital. And I have one of the greatest jobs in the world, and that is to take care of patients, both children and adults, with end-stage kidney disease and, you know, be able to make them better through the world of transplantation. So how old were you when you decided that that's what you wanted to do? When I was born. Actually, uh, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that because I'm a third generation physician. And so, um, you know, we were surrounded by the love of medicine through my father and through my grandfather. And dad would come home every day with a smile. And he was smiling every day because of the wonderful joys he had taking care of patients and making them better. And it was contagious. And many of us in my family ended up pursuing medicine. And so really, my earliest memories are I wanted to be like that, which, you know, he had the privilege of being a wonderful physician. And he practiced until nearly the age of 95. He was practicing medicine until a week before he passed away. And so his passion and his love of medicine, fortunately, has been handed down to the next generation. I'll ask you a couple more questions just kind of about your, uh, your long list of accomplishments in a little while. But moving forward, what is the Center for Life and what inspired it? Well, the, I mean, the inspiration for the Center of Life uh, really came about through conversations that Dr. Glenn Half, who was my uh, predecessor is director of the Transplant Center, uh, Joe Nesprall, who is uh, the director of the Texas Organ Sharing Alliance, otherwise known as TOSA, which is our you know, organ procurement organization. And Jennifer Melton, who is the executive director, actually the, the chief administrative um, officer for our Transplant Center. And through these conversations, it became apparent that having the opportunity to take care of those deceased donors who are, you know, brain dead and want to actually give the gift of life, you know, that we felt that we should really honor that desire to provide the gift of life when you pass away. And, and we felt that a center for life could be a very, very special place to be able to take care of donors and honor their wishes. And at the same time, be a special place, you know, where the, the donors, loved ones, family members, you know, could be in a environment that truly honors and admires and loves the donors. And so, you know, we also realized that, you know, many donors could not fulfill their wish of donating their organs when they passed away, either because they were in small health centers that did not have the capacity to be able to stabilize patients or, or deceased donors uh, that, that is from their physiology. You know, they're, they're brain dead, but physiologically their organs are still alive because the heart is still beating. That, you know, 
many donors were too unstable, you know, where a small health center can really stabilize those donors such that you can actually get to the point where surgeons come down and are able to, you know, compassionately procure, you know, the donor's organs. And so we realized that if those health centers had a center where these deceased donors could be transported to have an entire team working and stabilizing the donor, optimizing the management and the physiology of the donor, that we were able to actually procure more organs and successfully transplant those organs into patients. And so the Center for Life actually opened its doors in February. And it has been a tremendous success. Um, it's exceeded our expectations. It could not have opened at a more important time in our history because you know, COVID-19 actually made it very difficult for smaller hospitals to be able to actually manage a, a brain-dead, deceased donor. And because of the Center for Life, we were able to maintain you know, the volume of transplants and to be able to actually procure organs and send them to other centers you know, where patients were in greater need. And so the Center of Life is now, you know, really one of the very first of its kind, you know, being in a comprehensive teaching hospital associated with a comprehensive academic health center and also having a research arm such that we can actually, you know, learn how to better stabilize these patients and then also, you know, developing a biorepository where later on, you know, we can determine, you know, the, the success of the transplants over years to our patients and then also having tissue and serum to be able to kind of compare, you know, are there certain genetics or certain genotypes or certain aspects of the donor that actually, um, you know, are able to make transplant even more successful. And so, um, it's really a very, very wonderful center that honors the wishes of someone who wants to donate their organs upon, you know, passing away, and at the same time manages their loved ones in a very compassionate and empathetic way in a far more private area than you would be in a very busy hospital surrounded by so many other you know, aspects that make it even more stressful for a loved one. I was speaking with Tiffany earlier, and she let me know that you have a, a large repository of kidney biopsies. So before I ask this next question, just so we make sure that everybody understands what that is, can you explain briefly what a... Uh... So, so a biorepository, just in general, is... Um, a biobank, in a sense, where we are able to store indefinitely frozen tissue and frozen serum. And, and the purpose of that is to be able to study um, important molecular signatures that could potentially better improve outcomes. And let me give you a simple example, not related to transplantation, but, but, but I think it brings, it, it brings the message home. So all of us know individuals who have had cancer. And we know that many cancers still don't have good treatments. For example, liver cancer and even certain types of kidney cancers. And so whenever a surgeon removes that cancer, we sample the cancer as well as we sample a normal piece of tissue that doesn't incorporate the cancer, that is adjacent to the cancer, because you need to get a margin for a cure. So we have both normal tissue and cancerous tissue. And then we're able to actually freeze that tissue and be able to study it indefinitely. Now that tissue has 
many, many clues as to why cancers develop. And some of those clues are mutations, you know, where a gene is overexpressed or underexpressed. Some of those clues are that, you know, a protein may be in, in not the appropriate balance. And, and so there's many clues that we can actually derive as to what resulted, you know, why was this patient more predisposed to this cancer? Now, you also need to understand that medicine advances every year. And so 10 years from now, we're going to have even more powerful tools to study why that cancer developed. So 10 years from now, we can actually go back, get that tissue because it's frozen and study it with more powerful tools. And out of that will be an understanding of the molecular signatures. And if you understand that, then you can develop new therapeutics or new drugs that are highly targeted for that cancer, right? So, so now you're beginning to understand targeted therapies because targeted personalized therapies are based on molecular signatures. All right, so now we expand that for the very first time because the center of life is the first to do this, is to actually be able to, and this is again, it's part of the informed consent you know, of donation, is that we're able to actually sample a piece of tissue of the kidney or, or liver um, you know, of the donor and then be able to determine how that, how that molecular signature either doesn't change or changes once that organ is implanted or transplanted into a patient. So, um, I mean, you don't really have to utilize too much imagination to understand that there could be some very powerful clues to determine how a transplant organ changes, you know, after transplantation, after immune suppression. Um, are there factors that actually protect that kidney from developing changes from diabetes later on or not, uh, hypertension or not. And, and so this is really a whole new world of, of you know, research you know, focused on organs that become transplanted, you know, and so, this this is going to open up a whole new chapter in transplant science and the understanding of transplantation. You know, and, and also not everybody needs as much immune suppression, right? I mean, some patients need higher immune suppression than others. And are there clues that we can glean from by studying the genetics or the molecular signatures of the tissue that we transplanted into a patient? right? So it may be that some organs don't require that much immune suppression because they have a different molecular signature. And if you understand that, then you can titrate immune suppression, and therefore the patient who gets transplanted has less side effects from immune suppression. You know, at the end of the day, we want to tailor medications to the biology and the physiology of a patient. But now, a patient who's undergone a transplant has a little bit of a hybrid biology because you, you know, are carrying, you know, and, and nurturing the organ of someone who passed away, of, of not, not your molecular signature. So a lot to be learned from here, and, and we're only at the very tip of the iceberg. So you might have answered part of this next question. How are you working with your research teams to expedite impactful use of the repository? Well, um, Actually, once the research teams understand that we have such a biorepository, you know, they're knocking on our doors, right? Because there are a lot of physicians and scientists who are wanting to improve the quality of life of those who are transplanted. And part of improving that quality of life is understanding the biology, you know, of the transplanted organ. And so, um, you know, the scientists are very enthusiastic in helping them solve 
you know, these pieces of the puzzle, you know, that, that will make us better physicians and, and develop better medicines to treat patients. So we're very, we're very excited about it. So, so it's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's also offering just a, the opportunity for, for a wealth of knowledge or, or, or learning. It, it, it will provide an opportunity. Let, let's put it this way. It opens up the doors to learn a whole new wealth of knowledge because it's not an opportunity. It's actually a door opening. It's a fact. So the UTC is a university transplant center. What is a typical patient at UTC? What do they look like? Or, or who is a typical patient at UTC? Well, UTC, you know, standing for University Transplant Center, well, we take care of many patients with, you know, different diseases. We care for patients in need of lung transplantation. We care for patients in need of kidney transplantation. We care for patients in need of liver transplantation. We educate and take care of patients who want to be living donors. That is, you or I want to donate a kidney or a segment of our liver to save somebody else's life. That's called living donation. So we, we educate donors, and then we, we expertly care for them during the whole donation process and thereafter. And then we have a very, very busy clinic, you know, providing, you know, incredible care to these patients and their loved ones throughout their life. Once you become a transplant patient, you're part of family, of our family for the rest of our collective lives. And once you are a living donor, you are part of our family for life because you're a champion. And, you know, we also expertly care for patients who have, who have passed away and want to be donors. And we forever respect them and we forever, you know, treasure, you know, their, their, their family members uh, because we are a part of their grieving process, but we're also a part of the celebration that their loved one save many other people's lives. It's, it's a very, very, very special profession, you know, with, you know, both heartache because somebody has passed away, but then also with the joys of knowing that that donor's wish saved not one person's life, but many people's lives. It's, it's, I just can't imagine another profession quite like this. This has been a big year for you. In light of the new artificial kidney devices, therapeutics, and techniques that are being developed, where do you see transplantation headed? I, I think the major challenge that exists in transplantation is that those in need of transplantation are far greater in number than, you know, donors that provide the gift of life. And so even to this day, about 15% of patients on the waiting list pass away because they were unable to get transplanted. Specifically, for our conversation in regards to kidney transplant, some patients have to wait 8 or 10 years to get transplanted when they don't have a living donor available to them. I mean, that's, 10 years is a long time. Eight years is a long time. One year is a long time. And so I really think that, you know, the next great chapter in the field of transplantation will be in the field of organ preservation. That is, how can you actually, you know, procure an organ that, you know, was physiologically not great because of instability of the donor or other factors? 
and how through organ preservation research you can actually transition that suboptimal organ to become an optimal organ for transplantation. And I believe that, you know, the technology that has, that, that has evolved over the past three years, which is really the ability to actually perfuse those procured organs out of the body in, a, in, in almost an incubator setting where you actually can provide pulsatile blood flow allows us to actually, you know, biomedically adapt the organ to become an optimal organ for transplant. So, you know, for example, we can give um, different medications, you know, to be able to actually improve the blood supply, for example, to the kidney. Or we can utilize different medications to you know, perhaps reverse some of the effects of, of the instability of a donor, or perhaps even protect the kidney in the future from diabetic nephropathy, or you know, the impact of diabetes on a transplanted kidney. Um, you know, in, in South Texas, um, really throughout the United States, you know, obesity has become an epidemic. And with obesity, that, you know, in about 20% of people could result in what we call a fatty liver. And fatty livers tend not to be optimal organs for transplantation, let's say if they're over 30% fatty. Well, imagine if we can actually, you know, put this procured liver from a, from a deceased donor into a pump that we're able to actually provide, you know, blood supply to the liver and then utilize different medications that can actually deplete the liver of this fat, right? And so now you've actually been able to physiologically improve that procured liver and make it an optimal liver to transplant somebody. So imagine if we can expand the donor pool, not only by educating more people to be living donors, but also to expand the deceased donor pool, then we've made a real difference. Uh, really diminishing that imbalance between donors on the waiting list, I mean, I mean patients on the waiting list and available donors. You know, the, the next really exciting phase in transplantation as we develop, you know, new tools to understand, you know, immune suppression I mean, imagine if we can actually develop new immune suppressions that really present, prevent not only acute rejection, but chronic rejection, and also to have limited side effects to a patient. You know, and, and, and that's within our realm, that's within our reach in our lifetime. And so um, one thing about medicine, it's, it's continuously improving. And, you know, one thing great about an academic health center and you know, transplant centers that we are inspiring medical students and health professionals to be thinking about what if we could do this in the future. And so the next generation of healthcare providers and scientists, you know, are, 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 are seeing these things that actually, you know, young people have these great ideas that us older people don't. And, and that's how these issues get solved. And so, you know, we're in this wonderful, you know, mix of talent, both young and more senior healthcare professionals and scientists and ethicists and so forth, that when you put all these individuals together, great things happen. And that's the great thing about University Transplant Center. We've got incredible human talent who are passionate about making lives better. And, um, and because of that, we're seeing these innovations like the Center for Life. Um, and, and we encourage people to have ideas like this. And, and I think that's what inspires a team. I'm Tiffany Smith, Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Kidney Foundation. And I'm here to talk to you about your kidney health. Health is the most important asset we possess. COVID-19 
has exposed the unhealthy nature of our population. One in three Americans are at risk for chronic kidney disease. In absolute numbers, that translates into about 600,000 San Antonians. Have you been diagnosed with diabetes? Have you been diagnosed with hypertension? Do you take blood pressure medicine? Do you have heart disease? Have you experienced heart failure? Do you have a history of dialysis or kidney failure in your family? If you said yes to two or more of those questions, you need to come and see us. Are you a part of that one in three? Is your sister, is your brother, is your mother? Texas Kidney Foundation offers free screenings. All you have to do is go to our website, www.txkidney.org. Check out our free screenings. You can either come to our office for an in-office visit or we can come to you. You can schedule a screening or go to a screening near you. And we're back with Dr. Richard Gibney. Dr. Gibney, can you tell us a little bit about a concept that you talked about in the last segment, which is empowered uh, chronic kidney disease patients? How did you all put together an empowered program for the other stages of CKD, stages one through three? The answer is it was a wonderful opportunity because, as you say, you can have CKD one, two, three, four, five, and it's based on <clears throat> based on how much you're filtering, meaning uh, oh, what percent of, of normal kidney function do you have? Anywhere from 100% uh, down to uh, 15 or 10% when you mm-hmm. have to worry about having to have some kind of supportive help. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so in doing this, uh, we, we looked at this and the people at IHI and then the people in Janshipping, Sweden said, there's this massive force called the patient. And we've never taken advantage of the fact that the most powerful thing in the world is the patient. And if you'll give them permission to be involved in their care, you'll just be amazed at the things they can accomplish. Uh, and that's what's happened. So it covers the whole gamut. So if, if you got, I'll, I'll kind of go, uh, let's start out with CKD. That's why it's so important to find out who are you as a person? What is important to you? And then we can modify the therapy. And our goal is to cure or heal first. If we can't heal, stabilize. If we can't stabilize, slow down the loss of function. And then finally, if that fails, then put you on on some kind of renal replacement therapy, such as dialysis or transplant. But Or, or you can say, no, thank you. Uh, I can You can be conservative therapy and say, gee, because of all the problems I have and my age, et cetera, I'll just stay where I am and uh, and continue to take good care of me, but I, I don't want to do dialysis. And, that's, and that certainly is fine, too. <clears throat> the important point here is the patient is the one making the decision. The right. uh, patient is the one that with their family knows about all these things. And you have to take a very proactive role to make sure that you're doing this, um, because if you don't, then, then they, and again, I go back to that grief response, uh, the patient and family can miss the whole story, but it's, but it's just because we didn't, we didn't present it correctly. So we have a, vari- um, a wide variety of ways to present it until we can finally find one when the patient says, I get it now, I got it, I got it. Uh, so empowerment means that instead of Stealing, stealing control from you, I'm going to give you control. I'm going to preserve your control. I'm going to preserve your joy. I'm going to preserve your quality of life. I'm going to preserve your, your wellness as far as possible. Big difference. So let's say, and that's very important, you can imagine coming to see the doctor where it's a joyful place as opposed to depressing and awful, much better chance the patient will actually come. That's just kind of common sense. Exactly. I've I've been to dialysis units and even in a children's dialysis unit, because the, in a children's dialysis unit, the, the nurses uh, and, and doctors really work to make it a joyful, the, everything about the atmosphere is, is to, uh, to invoke joy. And even there, it is a hard place for uh, a person to be. Because, you know, the dialysis process, people often you start to feel a little sick to your stomach 
towards the end of the uh, uh, the treatment, and you know, there's there's just all of the the physical uh, mind over matter issues that that as a child you don't know how to even process, you know. So uh, I can only imagine what an environment that is not geared towards <laughs> trying to create as much joy as possible would be like in a, in a very clinical, austere setting for, uh, for patients. There's a, uh, a app called CKDNME. I like that app. CKDNME. <laughs> it's free, so you can put it on your phone. It's a wonderful animated thing that basically goes through this and talks about the different stages, one through five, what are your options as far as how do you deal with it? What could you do? And a whole bunch of different stuff. So highly recommend CKD and me. Brilliant thing. And then it, it doesn't cover everything, and uh, but it covers a huge amount and gives you your baseline so that whenever you have a question, look at CKD and me. And it's free. And it's just a wonderful, uh, it's sort of an animated cartoon. Very joyful, very... Uh, uh, videos on it, so it's it's really a powerful, powerful app that can give you confidence. And then the internet in general, there's tons of good stuff on there. But the one thing to start with would be CKD and me, and uh, that gives you another tool for you to take control of your health and for you to be able to retain your health and your quality of life. Oh, you're you're exactly right. I mean, there there are so many uh, educational tools out there for for uh, kidney patients. We simply have to have access to them and know about it. Our our biggest problem uh, that I could see uh, coming into the the kidney space, as as all the important kidney advocates say, <laughs> um, the most the the biggest problem was that people don't know about kidney disease, which is such a strange thing to me because it's been around for so long. You would think that everyone would know what kidney disease is simply because there are, like in, in the city of San Antonio, there are over 50 dialysis units. So when you go to the south side, uh, th- there's dialysis units everywhere it it doesn't matter what side of town you're on you can see, you can find a dialysis unit near you there are even dialysis units in malls uh as las palmas i want to say there are three dialysis units in that little uh strip mall like they're they're all over the place so but at the same time people don't know what kidney disease is. They don't realize that diabetes and hypertension lead to kidney disease. Most people don't realize that with diabetes, you could do everything right. You can take all of your medication, know your numbers, and still end up with blindness or an amputation. And we're, work, we're working diligently now to try to make a good partnership and collaboration between the kidney doctor and the primary care physician. Yes. If you look at the healthcare system, you can put in the um, electronic medical record, and you can say, Mm -hmm. if somebody has a decrease of kidney function or has albumin protein in their urine, Mm -hmm. then they need a referral, maybe a referral or a call by the primary care doctor to the uh, kidney doctor to say, what do you think? What should we do here? That's an easy way because... One of the problems is that kidney disease is silent. That's right. Because it's silent, you don't know about it. So, so when Dr. Gibney says silent, for my listeners, that means that you do not feel bad. It's not just that it's silent, but you don't feel bad. So you will be going along with your regular life and, you, and your kidney capacity, your kidney function is diminishing and you will feel absolutely Nothing. You won't feel any different. Nothing that's significant enough to make you stop and take pause. So with that, 
you can get a simple blood test and a urinalysis. And then if it's all normal, once a year, and if it's all normal, you don't have to worry about it. You know that your health is fine. And uh, it's a simple, easy way to do it. Um, the programs we have for people going to churches and having their blood pressure checked, um, those are great programs. Uh, the other thing we do is the ability for us to communicate, and that's a big deal. So how do you get – a simple example would be medications. And so how do we get if, – if, you, if you're – if you're on a whole bunch of medicines, how do we get make it so that we make sure you're on the right ones at the right time, right place? Anyway, the answer is if the medical team thinks one thing and you think the other, meaning it doesn't, they don't match. Um, there's a term, uh, medication reconciliation. It's a fancy term for saying, do the medicines of the doctor thinks and the medical team and what the patient's actually doing the same. And the success rate not right now is 5%. And you think, that's not very good. And so that's another really fun project. Again, if you empower people, you give the power to the patient. And there are very good educational programs where you can say to the patient simplistically, uh, and they can do this easily, say, I'm on this medicine, I take it this manner, and this is why I take it. And then you have, then the patient has power. They know what they're doing, and they can say, gee, I don't need this anymore. I don't need this. I want to decrease or increase. And they can go to their doctor and say, uh, I don't think I need this anymore or I want to change it. And you, you work as a team, but you've got to give that power to the people. If the person does not know why they're taking medicine, uh, it's not going to work very well. So we have to do a much better job educating the patient, giving them by educating. I'm talking about changing what we do. Like if I do, we've done it for 50 years. We've done it where it doesn't work. So we now have new approaches, like with the empowerment, we're saying, you know what, we're going to try this way, and it works. And that's, a, that's the same thing as the patient saying, you know, I don't want to be involved in my care. Just do whatever you want. Well, you know, that if you have gallbladder surgery, probably the surgeon should do the gallbladder surgery. <laughs> but, but if it's medical where you're taking care of diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, the person has to be involved because right. it's your body. It You'll do it better than anybody engagement. with appropriate education. And you're exactly right, Dr. Gibney. Thank you for giving us good advice and helping us to understand what's going on with patients uh, and the fact that we need to engage. Let's talk a little bit about the tools that we have now of in the kidney world. Let's talk about the executive order that President Trump signed July 10th, 2019. Uh, this is a magnificent uh, benefit for everybody in the country. And the reason yes. why is the government said, you know what? We can do better. Your outcomes are not very good. Your costs are way too high. And the patient experience is terrible. And we're going to do better. So he said, okay. So, for example, home Secretary therapy. Secretary Azar was, was uh, instrumental in that. Secretary Azar, I believe, was. was and, uh, Adam Bowler was the guy in charge of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Right. Superstar guy. And this guy, uh, Tom Duvall, was in charge of the renal part of that mm -hmm. uh, process. So uh, great, great people that said, we're going to change things and make it better. So having said that, there are three areas they wanted to make better. Uh <clears throat> Uh, number one, they wanted a lot more transplants because uh, the number of transplants we're doing, and that's why the uh, uh, hopefully in the next few years having an implantable artificial kidney will change things forever. Uh, number two was uh, home therapy. And again, in America, we have 10% of our patients, 10% of the dialysis patients are on home therapy, even though everybody agrees that's the best form of dialysis. Only 10% are on it. Correct. Only 10%. Whereas be, comparing yeah. that with foreign countries, Hong Kong, 80% are on home. Okay. Are y'all listening to that? 80% are on home there, home dialyzed. They are dialyzed at home. In Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. Listen. In uh, Australia, Canada, Europe, 
is somewhere typically between 30 to 40 percent. Still so considerably higher than us. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing very good. We need to do better. We can do better. And and, and it, that's what, what the government said with the executive order. They said, you're going to do better. They gave they us said, You're going to do better. <laughs> I mean, thank God. God bless the government. Uh, yeah. they, they said, you can do better and we're going to give you guidelines on how to do it because what you're doing now is not as good as it can be. So God bless them. Yes. And then, so it's the uh, transplant, home therapy, and then CKD, the people with uh, either mild to moderate loss of function, you're going to have to do better to decrease the number that go on dialysis because you're not doing a very good job and you can do better. And we, so, so let me get this straight. This administration charged healthcare professionals with outcome-based care. Yep. Outcome-based care. Right there, that's that is a revolutionary idea. That Amen. is something in terms of our healthcare system that we have never seen before. This administration made that decision. So in doing this, um, there's a thing called self-care in-center dialysis. And it's kind of similar to home therapy, but you do it instead of at home, you do it in center. And uh, we had tried it in the 70s and it didn't work very well because we were doing everybody assembly line, uh, full service, and only a couple of people. So it was like, you know, the the, the cultures were not compatible. And so uh, when we did self-care in-center dialysis, uh, copying the people from Jönköping, Sweden, where they've had huge success in Europe uh, doing this self-care in-center dialysis, uh, the patients obviously love it because they have control. They dramatically improve their quality of life. They dramatically decrease hospitalizations and mortality. They live longer. I mean, uh, this is not a hard sell. Uh, The patients in America are bright, smart and if it's good, they'll do it. And if it's no good, they won't do it. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's your ultimate judge. And so you look at this and you say, it's a much better deal to have everybody. And this is a transition we're beginning. If everybody's on self-care, then going home is so easy because you're already doing everything yourself. So instead of, instead of having to spend two months on training to learn how to do home care, you can spend only a week. So dramatic improvement makes it much quicker. So this is just a beginning process, but self-care in-center hemodialysis uh, is going to revolutionize the whole process. And we're just beginning that process. So, uh, and it would really prepare people to be able to go home. Now you've, you've had professionals there kind of guiding you. You, you will be comfortable and ready to go to your, your house and do this very same thing. And as re and, resume life, a normal pattern of life. And you can imagine if, uh, if you crash into the hospital and uh, you have to go on dialysis and we say, well, you know, why don't you go home? <laughs> you go, well, wait a minute. I don't know about that. But, you know, how confident and comfortable are people saying, well, you know, yeah, we can train you, you know, you can go home. Uh, that's really a, a severe transition. Much better to say, you know what? We're going to put you in center on self-care. You'll learn all this stuff and then you can go home. But I I should tell you, it depends on the person because it's such a loving, caring environment in the dialysis unit that some people will say, you know, either because they have bad uh, situations at home or because they're, they live by themselves and they're all alone. They like the dialysis unit because it gives them a place where they can have love and they can have people caring about them with the other patients and the staff that they don't have at home. Well, so, yeah, so because because human beings need human contact. And we do find that, that for a lot of people who are, are 65 and older, and the average kidney patient is 65, um, um, then they don't necessarily have the contact with kids and with extended family and with immediate family that one uh, thinks of every family unit is not uh, a nuclear close family unit. 
Uh, some family units are, are estranged, so you're exactly right. They need that human contact. COVID-19 has kind of taught us that, even within my own uh, office. You know, I have, have some, during my day job, I have employees who live alone, and uh, I make it my business to talk to them because, one, I adore them, <laughs> and two, uh um, none of us really realized how much we interact with each other uh, and only with each other when, until COVID-19 hit and we were all kind of in our own little little corners. And our, my, my folks who are by themselves really felt being by themselves, you know, and, and uh, the rest of us realized, oh, wait, we need to we need to pull this person in and make sure that that uh, that they get some attention. Absolutely. And uh, so, it, again, it's that whole question of uh, <clears throat> recognizing recognizing patients' abilities and their humanity. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, if you have a staff where it's kind of all the same process that the home, the staff that are training people to do home dialysis and the staff that are taking care of patients in center – are all using the same technique of we're going to help you. And as I say, uh, here's a good example. Disabilities don't matter to us. So if you're mentally slow, that just means that we modify it. Uh, if you've uh, got rheumatoid arthritis, uh, quick, quick, quick examples, a lady with really bad rheumatoid arthritis, she can build her machine. Now, how she gets her hands to get the tubing and everything else, she's just committed. She's going to do it. We didn't tell her. She just said, I'm going to do it. Or a lady that's mentally slow that she was looking around at the other patients and they were all doing everything. And she said, what about me? And the staff was kind of like, well, you know, and she was starting to get mad. They said, okay, okay. So the staff carefully trained her to pull the needles herself. And then she was happy and joyful because she was doing that. Everybody, just like everybody else, always assume that you can, you can do something to give people power. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, with the the process involved with with dialysis, everybody feels nervous. You know, like the first time you see it, it 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 makes you nervous. But the people that are in those dialysis clinics, those nurses, the doctors, uh, they spend the majority of their time trying to put the patient at ease. So that they can can go through uh, this process, I like what you're talking about because that puts their efforts and the patient's efforts in alignment. <laughs> you know, the two of the between uh, all parties, you can have an amazing outcome for each patient. When I'm giving talks, people will frequently say, well, what about the liability? And I said, it's the opposite. There is no liability. Who do you think cares more about what's going on? So you Who have cares an army. more about getting that needle in there right? The patient or you? The patient. Correct. <laughs> the, the patients that cannulate themselves, they never have a problem. They know how to do it. They, that's their own body. They do great. Exactly. Uh, the same thing with... Uh, everything else that, uh, and, and the really nice thing about it is that it's a partnership collaboration. So let's say if the, if, uh, if the techs that are putting out the disposables put out the wrong thing, the patient will catch that, but not in a way of a gotcha, not a gotcha thing, but it's, it's, it's a, I'm helping you, you help me. It's mutual love for each other and say, no problem. You know, thanks, thanks for, thanks for catching that. Uh, so it, it improves the safety, it improves the, the whole process, uh, which is really what you should expect. If, you know, if the patient uh, is involved in their care, we had a problem where there's, there's a thing called the Phoenix meter, where after you get everything set up, you check the, the uh, dialysator, the fluid that goes around the, the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the membrane that, that, that separates it from the blood to take off all the toxins. And just make sure that it, the, the the conductivity is correct, and uh, the patients never drop one. If you drop one, it costs eight hundred dollars to get it fixed. 
the patients never drop one. Uh, so they're always, so the staff, it's just because before they were rushing around to try to get everybody done. Staff are great, but sometimes if you're rushing, patients don't rush. And there you go. Patient empowerment, saving, saving lives and money all the way, all the way around throughout the process. Thank you, Dr. Gibney, for spending your time and energy with us today and talking with us about uh, chronic kidney disease the Kidney Task Force, and what's going on in the world of kidneys. I will be bringing you back on to talk with us some more about what's happening with with the latest innovations in kidney disease. Since you're the guy that seems to keep up with everything that's going on, you have your finger on the pulse of kidney of the kidney world. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you for your help. And you have... You all have been listening to On the Record with Tiffany. If you want to know more about uh, chronic kidney disease or ways you can be involved in uh, helping in the kidney community, then go to www.txkidney.org and check out what the Texas Kidney Foundation is doing. Um, We offer free kidney screenings. And you can find out what your, the very thing that Dr. Gibney was talking about, what your albumin levels are and what your, your uh, EGFR is through one of our free screenings. All you have to do is call, text, or go online and you can find out about your kidney. You can start the process of, of finding out about your kidney health. All right. You all have a wonderful evening and Wear your mask, social distance, stay safe, and be good Texans. You're listening to On the Record with Tiffany. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930am The Answer. 